Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about muslin. We are thrilled to welcome our guest today, Dr. Hilary Davidson. Hilary Davidson is a dress textiles and fashion historian and curator. She is the chair and faculty member of the Fashion and Textile Studies Department at New York's Fashion Institute of Technology. Hillary earned her PhD in archeology span from La Trobe University in Melbourne and also holds a MA in the history of textiles and dress from the University of Southampton in England. Her professional experience includes work as curator of fashion and textiles for the Museum of London. And she is the author of two books and several book and journal chapters focusing on Regency fashion, including Dress in the Age of Jane Austen and the forthcoming Jane Austen's Wardrobe, both from Yale University Press. Welcome, Hillary. Hi, thank you for having me. We're so glad to have you. So before we start in on our conversation, we will kind of set the scene. We are starting the conversation with Northanger Abbey, and Mrs. Allen and Catherine Moreland have had a disappointing first night out in Bath at the Upper Assembly Rooms, but things are looking up for our heroine on her second outing to the Lower Rooms. She has been introduced to the oh-so-charming Henry Tilney, and during their first dance together, they are interrupted by Mrs. Allen, who is in need of assistance. So here we get the text. My dear Catherine, she said, do take this pin out of my sleeve. I'm afraid it has torn a hole already. I shall be quite sorry if it has, for it is a favorite gown, though it costs but nine shillings a yard. That's exactly what I should have guessed it, madam, said Mr. Tilney, looking at the muslin. Do you understand muslins, sir? Particularly well. I always buy my own cravats, and I'm allowed to be an excellent judge. And my sister has often trusted me in the choice of a gown. I bought one for her the other day, and it was pronounced to be a prodigious bargain by every lady who saw it. I gave but five shillings a yard for it and a true Indian muslin. Mrs. Allen was quite struck by his genius. That last line is just, I love it so much. She is so impressed. She is in <laughs> awe of his knowledge. So, Hillary. To get us started, can you just tell us a little bit about what muslin is as a textile, particularly during this time period? Well, muslin at this point is a fine, generally white, sort of light, quite open weave fabric. And technically, muslin is the yarn, so the thread that makes up the textile. And then it can be woven into types of muslin, so a cambric muslin or a jacinet muslin. And this is a textile that's been woven in various areas of India, particularly Bengal, for thousands of years. Uh, and it's been imported slowly into Europe over that time. But it really increased imports into Europe with the rise of the East India Company throughout particularly the 17th and 18th century. And so by the, the, the sort of the, about the 1780s, you start to see muslin increasing in fashion for women's dresses. And it's this light, airy, kind of floaty fabric. I think in, in current American usage, it's, it's something that's called mull, 
because the word muslin has been used for what in British and Australian usage is called calico, that kind of plain fabric. So just for, mm. just sort of clarify that for any US listeners. But this this light, floaty, delicate, also sort of slightly translucent fabric is quite a contrast to the crisp silks and uh, the taffetas and brocades that have comprised um, elite European dress for this time. And so from the late 18th century onwards, we see a rise in muslin amongst, I'm I'm not going to say everyday, but middle class and above people's clothing. So we're talking about a cotton fabric. There's some linen, but traditionally it's made of cotton that has the, the threads that are in it are very fine and it's sort of airy and elegant and, and envelops the wearer. Well, and it's it's a craft that's kind of specialized in India. I mean, it's not just coming from India, but there's like a whole craft behind it, right? That there's this, this skill set that only a true Indian Muslim would be able to replicate. Exactly. And at this point as well, because it is coming from India, there's all these conditions that make the finest muslins. So you have to kind of keep the thread wet. It has to be a certain kind of um, the fine cotton plant that creates it. The weavers who make it, they have to work in quite damp conditions in order to keep the thread um, elastic enough to weave it. And I mean, the, the very, very finest muslins, you can see your hand through. Oh. They're incredible. They, they used to be called woven air. What's also happening concurrently with the popularity of muslins is that European manufacturers are going, wait a second, we're losing a lot of our market to this imported fabric. We'd like a bit of this action, please. So they're trying to imitate the imported Indian version. And as the East India Company, which is basically a corporation running without check or control in India, as their economic power rises, Britain is more and more concerned about getting being able to compete with the muslin industry. So the East India Company, through the very late and 18th and early 19th century, are putting more economic checks and controls on muslin production to give British manufacturers a chance to imitate the the real thing. And they're trying to do by machine what in India has been done by hand for centuries. So there's this incredible kind of industrial textile economic race happening at exactly the time that Jane Austen is writing Northanger Abbey. So whether something is a true Indian muslin or a slightly inferior British, possibly French imitation muslin is of quite, it's quite a distinction for the Regency consumer who can see the difference instantly. Okay. So we don't know if Mrs. Allen's dress here is a true Indian muslin, but we know that Henry at least is able to spot the differences. Or do we? Oh, Is he pulling our legs? This is this is the question, you know. This this passage is often taken at face value, but this is Jane Austen we're talking about here, and it's not quite clear whether Henry Tilney is actually telling the truth or if he's kind of ribbing Mrs. Allen mm. slightly, and she she hasn't she hasn't worked it out. Yeah. And it's it's quite hard to kind of get into the economic nitty gritty of whether he is or not, because there's often quite a lot of variation in muslin prices. And if at this point, true Indian muslins were quite cheap comparatively, and it's not until the 19th century that the price is raised. So I think it's between about 1806 and 1818, the tariff import costs on Indian muslins are raised nine times in those years. 
in order to protect the British manufacturing. So I've got to say, I'm like... You're suspicious I'm of I'm not this. quite sure about Henry Tilney <laughs> here. He certainly understands what muslins are used for, but he might be pulling Mrs. Allen's leg and therefore our legs. Right. Which fits with his character. I mean, it does. Oh, right? yeah. He's just cheeky enough. He's a tease. And then, and the fact that we all, we all also know that Mrs. Allen is incredibly gullible. Absolutely. And like not paying attention to things. So you know, the fact that she's struck exactly. with his genius here makes makes that work, I think. But some of the things as well, like the fact that he buys his own muslin for cravats, that he could buy for his sister, this is totally commensurate with shopping habits of the Regency gentry in this period. Men could absolutely go shopping. And if he was in Bath when his sister was not, most families were involved in the practice of proxy shopping, where you commission someone you know, generally a family member, if they're going into town, into London or Bath, or even just, you know, your nearest big town, can you please get me these things because you're there? And so that Henry Tilney shops for textiles for his sister is totally plausible. And in fact, in line with the shopping habits of the time, which all of the Austen family were involved in um, proxy shopping and, and lots of the letters between Jane and Cassandra are doing exactly that, commissioning purchases when one of the others is in um, Bath or London. So he knows enough that Eleanor can trust him to pick out some good fabric. Exactly, exactly. And he probably could. I mean, I would say he probably could tell the difference between a true Indian and a British Muslim because Regency consumers were very alert to the materiality of what they were buying. And they, they, they knew the hand of things. They were kind of haptic shoppers, as you call it academically. And they, they were accustomed to touching what they were buying right. and really kind of being alert to fine nuances of quality because, you know, clothing had to last longer, uh, textiles were more expensive. So they were really invested in the nuances and lasting quality of, of what they were buying. So even Mrs. Allen fussing about that hole in her, her, in her sleeve, you know, once, he, once muslin's torn, any repairs to it are visible. So she's still trying to protect, even though it's just nine shillings a yard, which is really quite expensive. That's more than a silk at the time. She doesn't want it to get ruined. Yeah. What is funny how Tilney seems to really kind of key in on the pricing and, you know, he's like a savvy bargain hunter. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the, even the nuances between, you know, what makes a five shilling muslin, if it does, I'm just going to like, going to add a little grain of salt there metaphorically, um, or a nine shilling muslin that, you know, he would be completely alert to. Even if it was like a five to a six shilling muslin, is it worth that price difference? Is someone trying to sort of rip you off? If you went to the other store just next door, could you get the same one for slightly cheaper? Well, and it's interesting too, because in, in this same kind of passage, there's a part where Mrs. Allen turns to, to Tilney and says like, okay, what do you think of Catherine's gown? And he does talk about the way that it's going to wear, the way that it's going to, you know, is it going to fray, these sorts of things. Like he's, he's very much so, again, attuned to not just, you know, the quality, but the way it's going to wear, the way, you know, how much use are you going to get out of it? And he even talks about like Eleanor will be like, oh, I bought too much, but I can always turn it into something else. Exactly. And I think there's, for me, that passage also reads about his closeness with his sister. Because it, it sounds like he's talked about this with her. Their mother's dead. She's the only other kind of close female person in the family. He's got an older brother and a, you know, a father you're not going to be chatting about Muslim with, <laughs> let's be honest. So, you know, it sounds like he's talked about this with his sister, that he's sort of paid attention because one of his qualities is that he listens and he's he is interested. He can hold a conversation with someone like Mrs. Allen and he might be ribbing her, but it's compassionate and kind. 
So I think it also says something about Tilney's character too, that he's had conversations about dresses coming back from the laundry with someone who we must assume is his sister. Yeah. And it, so it's telling us a little bit about his character too. I love that. Their relationship is obviously very close. We see that throughout the text. But I, but I love that, yes, if, if he's this attuned to it, it's because most likely, yeah, he and Eleanor have that kind of relationship. Yeah. And also that pragmatism that, you know, can always be turned to something else, uh, a cap or a scarf or something like that. It's true. And you see muslin appearing in all sorts of things. And that sense of reusing and recycling, that's that's absolutely mapping onto what we see in the material record of, of how Regency consumers use muslin. I'm kind of curious because of this discussion that they're having and the way, again, that Tilney's very cognizant of the price and, and the wear, what sort of reputation did muslin as a textile have during this time period? Was it a frivolous fabric? Was it a luxury fabric? You said that it was sort of middle class and above, like everybody was wearing it. So was it fairly accessible? Like who was muslin for? I mean, what, what's really remarkable about muslin is it's the first, well, you know, roughly the, the, the first strong example of a less luxury or elite fiber becoming an elite product. So this is the beginning of the change to a cotton regime in European culture. So whereas silk had dominated elite dress, and I'm talking by elite, I mean sort of, you know, the the, the gentry middling class and above, we're talking the top kind of 20, maybe 25% of a population going up to the to the aristocracy. And Muslin, I mean, the, the, the controversy about the portrait of, say, Marie Antoinette, the Queen of France, who was painted in a, a muslin gown in, I think it's 1783 by Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, people were scandalized because the Queen was depicted in something that looked slightly like underwear. So it was often called, you know, a chemise dress or a chemise à la reine. But this is not appropriate fabric for a Queen. You know, muslin was not, it wasn't the dumb thing. It was not of a, an appropriate rank. And the power of aristocratic trendsetters like Marie Antoinette and her circle, like Georgia, the Duchess of Devonshire, uh, or Mary Perdita Robinson, who was the first person to wear it in Britain in 1782, this sort of new style. And as well as the kind of, I mean, the change to a sort of simpler styles in dress is often associated with the French Revolution, but it's part of like bigger, bigger changes happening throughout society. So by the 1790s, muslin had become one of the dominant fabrics for dresses, and it would keep increasing that dominance. So it was, it was more accessible in terms of product to buy. It was still had a luxury status to it, not least because of its fragility. There's maintenance and upkeep right. involved in muslin. You have to be able to wash it to keep it clean because it's, it's white. You have to be able to mend it because it tears really easily. Like in um, Pride and Prejudice, where Lydia sends home and says, you know, tell Sally, the servant, to mend the great slit in my worked muslin gown. So there's, there's housemaids can't wear it. Again, there's that reference in um, Mansfield Park, where Mrs. Norris is very pleased that the um, housekeeper at the other great house doesn't let the housemaids wear white. So it's, although it's sort of often seen as, as a democratizing fashion and cotton becoming something that was worn as an outer garment absolutely was, but often it's the pretted strong cottons that are worn by um, sort of lower middle class and working class women. And muslin becomes, as it were, an elite cotton. And 
by the 17, mid-1790s, it's become quite sort of normalised in dress, but its real kind of powerhouse of popularity is about 1795 to really about 1820. Okay. And during that time, you see the switchover from the dominance of Indian to the dominance of British Muslims. As the British Muslims get cheaper, they become more accessible, but it's still, it's still not an everyday fabric. Mm. And there is a kind of a, a social elite attachment to that, while it also becomes quite quite normalized within that group. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. So because this is such a, a light material, this is something, again, you've, you've talked about the way it wears and, and worrying about it fraying. I'm assuming that, um, and, you, and you also mentioned Marie Antoinette's somewhat kind of scandalized, scandalizing everyone because it's such a light kind of fabric. Was this often layered in dress because you couldn't all the time okay and this is this is one of the i think the things that's the regency period's clothing has a number of kind of great clothing myths attached to it first of all the one is that women dampened their muslin gowns which i have never found any any evidence for okay what you have is people saying because the idea is that you know oh you dampened your gown and then it clung to the body and you could see everything in this kind of you know transparency but we're dealing with a fabric that does cling i mean if you've ever worn muslin it's quite staticky mm. right so it does kind of cling to itself and period reports say it looks as if it was damped but they're not saying it was dampened because also what are you going to do like carry a spray bottle <laughs> around with you all night for when it dries out like it's actually impractical if you think about it but three seconds. But this, the idea of its translucency and transparency is part of what I think of the great kind of visual illusions of the Regency, because what a lot of clothing is doing is trying to make it look as if you're naked underneath, but you're definitely not ever naked underneath. Got all that structure underneath going on. Yeah. Yeah. There's always things under there. And then we, you know, so we see First of all, in France, they were a bit more risque than they were in Britain. So we see these portraits of people like Madame Recamier, where she's kind of got, you know, she's, she's, she's barely dressed in muslin and it's sort of just like these whispers over her bosom. But even where it looks like, for example, a woman isn't wearing a corset, corsets were cut to look like they weren't wearing corsets. So they usually are because you don't get that amazing, you know, lift and separate two oranges on a plate kind of Regency <laughs> bosom. Without something helping you underneath, mm-hmm. generally. Yeah. And once you know what to look for, you can start to see like how they're doing it so that it looks like it's an illusion. And it's pretty much the same with petticoats and things underneath. There are reports that say some Parisian women would wear pink silk knitted body stockings to match the tone of their flesh so that, you know, the illusion. But, you know, it's only in kind of caricatures and exaggerations that we see this kind of you know, the whole sort of joke on bumbazine instead of bombazine and, and, you know, the notion that it's totally transparent. But when you look at what people are doing, there's always something underneath. And if we take a few fashion outliers, it's like looking, you know, if someone in a hundred years time was looking back and saying, oh, everybody dressed like Kim Kardashian. She's a very elite person who pushes fashion in a certain way and it's part of her persona and it's part of her, what makes her notable. But that's not what, you know, we're wearing to get around in. And so when you look at what most people are wearing and how most women are wearing muslin, they're wearing petticoats and chemises and corsets underneath it. And it might be, you know, it's more clinging and soft than stiffer 18th century dress, but you're certainly not 
showing everything you've got to the world. You're striking a fine balance between being beautifully dressed and, you know, revealing such charms as are appropriate to <laughs> the situation in, in which you are. Oh, I think that's fantastic. Such charms as are appropriate. I love that. That's good. Yeah. I also just, two oranges on a plate. That's an image that's going to stay with me for a while. <laughs> it should do. It's, it's yeah, you, you've got two separate globes that just like lift and separate, but they've always got a gap between them. This whole kind of what I think of as two loaves of bread dough smooshed together with the line between them, which is the modern idea of cleavage. You often see this in, so Bridgerton, for example, has what I think of as bread dough cleavage. Hmm, okay. But when you actually look at what the Regency does, it's two orange cleavage. And it's, you know, two distinct breasts. And this is quite an innovation in the Regency period by comparison with the kind of the single monobosom 18th century style that gives you that kind of line down the middle, what we think of as cleavage. But it's, uh, there's a subtle difference. And I never thought I'd be saying Regency cleavage expert on a CV, but <laughs> here you go. Check mark. <laughs> yes. Got that yep. one. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. The skill nobody knew they needed. And, and was there a difference at all between the sort of muslin worn for day wear versus what they might, the type of muslin gown that you would wear in the evening? Absolutely. There's, there's lots and lots of different kinds of muslin. In India, there's over a hundred different kinds that are, that are woven. So it can be from this completely, you know, almost completely transparent, the finest, most expensive, to something that is only slightly transparent, what we might think of as like a, a lawn mm. today. And so within that as well, you would have muslins that could have patterns woven in, which in India um, areas is called the jamdani technique. So you could have, you know, decorative patterns that are actually part of the weave. And then you could also have chikan muslins, which is where the pattern is embroidered in. And so many of the things that we think of as kind of typical Regency decorative muslins, like, you know, a spotted muslin or a sprigged muslin. Well, a spotted muslin is actually the Doruka technique. And it's just that that name, that Indian originating name just gets erased. So the um, you could also have muslins that were, so you could have a plain muslin for day or a jaconette muslin or the cambric muslin, which had a kind of a polish to it. And then how that was decorated, you would have the more fanciful ones for the evening. So it could be embroidered often white on white, but sometimes color on white or multicolor on white, often with the tambour technique, which is kind of chain stitching with a hook. And then there are absolutely stunning gold and silver embroidered muslins that just, you know, glitter in the candlelight as it would have been. And so you've got this incredible sort of light textile contrasting with a kind of a richness of silver gilt or gold gilt decoration and often little sequins so little sort of metal spangles so this kind of gold encrusted cotton is a whole new thing and you could have really quite exceptional and splendid muslins or very very finely embroidered ones so there's there is a full spectrum of what you can buy not just along the price but in the finish and and you know how splendid that is because if I'm remembering correctly, there's in Mansfield Park when Fanny wears her dress for her kind of her coming out, Edmund's like, ooh, he's admiring the glossy spots on it. Yes. So I'm assuming that's kind of what this is describing here. Exactly. A glossy spot would probably be satin stitch embroidered okay. because when you weave it in, it's not so glossy. So if it's a glossy spot, something's something's been done on the outside. And it you know, he might have used shiny if it was if it was a metallic one. But Fanny's very modest. And as he says, a woman can never be too fine in white, which 
I find really interesting because that's the same novel where Mrs. Norris points out very clearly that a woman can indeed be too fine in white if she's not at the right social level. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's mm, yeah. yeah. No, no woman you know, Edmund, could be too <laughs> fine in white. But mm. Well, you know, who are, who are we going to take our fashion advice from? I mean, both of them are a little bit right. suspicious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, in that novel, Mary Crawford, oh, no 100%. question. She, she'd be like, yeah, yeah she knows the what one she's we want. doing. Yes. Well, so, you know, if we're talking about shopping and this fine dress and things like that, when Mrs. Allen and Catherine arrive in Bath, the very first thing they do is go to the shops looking for new gowns. And as we see at the scene that we used to kind of set up the episode, muslin gowns are something Mrs. Allen is very passionate about. Um, We also get a scene later in the novel when Catherine actually loses sleep thinking about which muslin she's going to wear the next time she sees Mr. Tilney. Why do you think Austen gives Muslin this much narrative space in this novel? I mean, Northanger Abbey seems to be particularly obsessed with Muslin. <laughs> Why do you think Austen does that? What's going on here? I think this is Northanger Abbey is a really, really interesting novel in this sense because of the length of time between its genesis and its mm. publication. So it appears to have been drafted in the late 1790s. Austen's in her early 20s. This is the same period that, so she does First Impressions, which becomes Pride and Prejudice. She does uh, Eleanor and Marianne, which becomes Sense and Sensibility, and she becomes Susan. That becomes Northanger Abbey. But it doesn't get published until after her death in 1818. So what we have is a novel that is ostensibly an 1818 novel, but in fact maps over the period of Muslin's greatest popularity Mm -hmm. and where Muslin is like the new fashion fabric. And Northanger Abbey is the most directly chatty about clothes of all Austen's novels. So for me, the obsession with muslin, because it's true, it appears, you know, far more in here than anything else, is kind of, um, it's a mark of her juvenilia. You know, when you look at the juvenilia that she wrote beforehand, which is hilariously funny and like rip-snortingly laugh-out-loud funny, and it's often kind of making jokes about muslin and textiles and things like that. And she's writing when she's in her 20s, um, which she's, she's very alert to fashion in her 20s. Mm. It's also the period where, so, you know, sort of 1795 to 1800, muslin is it. They're just muslin is like this new fashionable fabric. It's what everybody's wearing. So I think what we see in Northanger Abbey is this marker of muslin's grasp on fashion. It's the sort of the time where it becomes a little white dress of the the upper class woman. We also hear a lot about great coats and kind of hat details and yeah. things like that. So I think this is kind of an example of Austen's youthful writing responding to the world in which she's living at that time where she's wearing fashion and muslin is super fashionable and she's spending like quite a lot of time in Bath too. So I think it's really interesting like that. It's It's kind of a palimpsest of or an excavation of time that's very reflective of the moment in in which it was created. Yeah. Fashion was on her mind, you know. This, this was like, yeah. it was the it fashion of the time. So, yeah, it makes sense that it would yeah. come up a lot. And it's, it's you know, Northanger Abbey's got that fabulous passage about fashion is at all times a frivolous distinction. And, you know, basically she's saying... Women, you know, it's far more important to women than than it is to men. And if, you know, women knew how little men cared about it, which also, you know, is playing off against the, the Tilney thing. And, and like Austin, it's it's firmly tongue in cheek. But, you know, I think 
you know, what if Austin stayed awake all night one night saying, well, I don't know which muslin to wear. You know, it's it's she angst slightly about muslins in her letters at this time. So I'm hoping that's from personal experience. I mean, who hasn't been stressed about what are they going to wear to a certain event? Especially when it's someone you like, someone you want to yeah. impress. Yeah. yeah. It feels very it feels very authentic. Yeah. And who can, you know, when everyone can read muslins, like right. which muslin you're going to wear yeah. is going to make a difference. Are you going to wear the sprigged or the spotted or the gold or the, you know, the minute differences of quality made a difference. That's so true because you you talked earlier about how, you know, it would have been very typical for a Regency consumer to really be able to recognize price and quality. So then, you know, if you go to an event, everyone's going to know if you're wearing the bargain basement muslin. Uh-huh. Well, and, and again, she's also aware that like Tilney reads muslin, you know, and he's yes. the one she's trying to yes. impress. So Yeah. And whether he's whether he's telling the truth or not, that's irrelevant because he's he's shown her that he can read muslin in some way. And yeah, that's just like, ah, not am I good to good or like wear clothes to impress the boy I like, but he knows exactly what I'm wearing. Like <laughs> he's gonna know if I'm wearing, you know, counterfeit Gucci rather than real <laughs> Gucci. It's yeah. Pressure. There's a lot of pressure here. My knockoff muslin. Yeah, exactly. You know, this is this is the Zara version, not the Catwalk version. <laughs> and now I feel anxious, actually. Like, I'm like, oh, God, what muslin would I be wearing? This is, yeah. Who hasn't received an invitation for something like a wedding and you're looking at the dress code and you're just like, okay, I don't want to be overdressed, but I definitely don't want to be underdressed. Which of my muslins is smart casual? Yes, yes exactly. I really feel for Catherine in this moment, just laying awake at night. And then it doesn't help that she's got Isabella Thorpe traipsing around as well, you know, with all her London fashion knowledge yes. and, you know, ready to kind of jump in in a kind of passive aggressive critique at yeah. any moment. Yeah, that's 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 not helping her either. Plus, you know, Mrs. Allen, her chaperone, who all she can think about is clothes. <laughs> so if they go out in the evening, you know that all Mrs. Allen's going to be talking about is whether Catherine's chosen the right muslin or not. How can she sleep at all, frankly? Like... <laughs> This is consuming all of her time, really. <laughs> I mean, it's novels and muslin. That's, that's all she's got <laughs> time <it>. for. <laughs> yeah. Well, all of this discussion of muslin in Austen's novels definitely demonstrates, like you said, that she had her own keen eye for dress and fashion of the time that she was living in. And your forthcoming book, Jane Austen's Wardrobe, touches on all of this. So can you tell us a bit more about the book? When can we get our hands on it? <laughs> Absolutely. Would you like the long story or the short story of the book's genesis? I think long. we want the long story. Long, yes. obviously. I hoped you'd say that. Yeah, like I wouldn't have asked really unless <laughs> I thought you were going to say that. So it was the pandemic, I think 2020. And I, for various reasons that are too long to go into, ended up in a cottage in rural Wales. So I was puttering around trying to teach long distance in Sydney and doing various things. And as I was puttering around one day, uh, working on something for, for Jane Austen's letters, the, the idle thought floated through my head. Ah, I wonder why nobody's written a book just looking at what Jane Austen wore, taking it the information from the letters. And then I went, wait a second. <laughs> I wonder why nobody has done this. This is like, do you just go through the letters and look at, you know, all the tiny references to this is what she wore? And you could sort of reconstruct some of Jane Austen's wardrobe with that. And then I went, wait a second. And then there are real things that she wore that you could put in with that. And there we are. I mocked up a couple of pages of, you know, what I thought this book would look like. Just 
examining basically what we can know Jane Austen wore based on her letters and her surviving objects. It's a pretty straightforward idea, but it's just, it goes through systematically. And while lots of people have looked at sort of what Austen wore and, and used the letters as a source, I mean, my first book is, is really minds these. This one just focuses on how much information we can extract about what Austen was wearing based on very, very small references. Because, I mean, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, only 161 of her estimated 3,000 letters survive. Yeah. And so that's what I did. I've just gone through chronologically and we ended up deciding to organize it more like a wardrobe just to kind of keep things together. So all of the sections are parts of a wardrobe. So all of her gowns are in the clothes press, all of her shoes and are on the shelves, all of her jewelry's in a jewelry box, and the kind of the the chapters are organized that way. But it's basically a page of images and then the reference from the letters and then explaining what's going on in this and then also incorporating the things that we know or pretty sure we know that she owned like her pelisse, which I've studied a lot, the, her turquoise ring, her turquoise bracelet, the topaz crosses. And it turns out this is also the first time that all of these objects will have been published together. So that's also really exciting too. Yeah. Um, we've got kind of bits and pieces out, but they've never actually all been in a book together. So that's what the next book is, Jane Austen's Wardrobe. It's going to be fabulous. I just, what a great resource. Yeah. And when can we when can we get our hands on this? This is this is important. Well, I'm not sure. Pre-orders, I think, will probably open in August, but the publication date is September the twelfth, twenty twenty-three. Okay, so coming up soon. And it is through Yale University Press, so it'll be simultaneously in the US, UK, and worldwide. And you know, you can get it through your preferred book purveyor channel. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to do this with us. It's absolutely my pleasure. Although I am much more anxious about Catherine Morland than ever I was before. <laughs> right. so. Now we have to worry for Catherine in a way that we've never had to worry for her before. Poor thing, just laying awake at night, cycling through her wardrobe. Her in wardrobe her mind. cycles. Uh-huh. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, Hillary, where can our listeners find you online and follow along with you and, and probably get updates on the book publication? Absolutely. I do have a website, www.hillarydavidson.net, and that's Hillary with one L, which I will update at some point. I'm also available on social media, uh, Twitter or Instagram. My handle is at four red shoes, and that's the number spelled out. And uh, both my first book, Dress in the Age of Jane Austen, and the second book, Jane Austen's Wardrobe, can be found on their own Twitter account, at Austen Dress. So I'm just keeping on going for the second one and for the first one. So any kind of dedicated book news, I'll be putting on there. Perfect. Excellent. Thank you so much, Hillary. It has been an absolute delight to chat with you. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you again to Dr. Hillary Davidson for joining us for this discussion on muslin. And as sort of a companion to this episode, if you haven't already had a chance to do so, We definitely recommend that you listen to our episode on the East India Company with our guest, Sharmini Kumar. You can find us on Instagram at The Thing About Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. 
where we will be talking about Anne Elliot's Bloom. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.